In Jesus' teaching that's recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, it's full of really hard things. There's some really challenging commands and teaching uh, through this section. And, and there's specifically a part where Jesus refers to the Jewish law. And as he's referencing, it's as though he keeps raising the bar as he's speaking. He says, you know, you've heard that you're not supposed to murder. Seems like a pretty straightforward thing. And he, and he equates that. He raises the bar and says, well, I tell you, you're not even supposed to be angry. You're not supposed to call people names. And, and that's one of the, but that's actually shocking when you stop and realize Jesus is equating these things with what's at the heart of murder. He goes on and says, you know, you've heard an eye for an eye, which is sort of our idea of fair play. And he teaches this idea of instead turning the other cheek when you're struck. There was a command well known of love your neighbor. Now Jesus says you also have to love your enemies. It's pretty hard stuff. There's no shortage of challenge uh, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm coming to think that perhaps one of the most onerous teachings that Jesus presents in this section is actually found in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to jump in there if you want to take a Bible and follow along. We're going to begin in verse 25. And, And even though there's things like Not being angry, like loving your enemies. These are difficult things. I actually think for some of us, this is harder. This is Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. And Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Maybe your translation has, don't be anxious. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Asking this question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And then he gives this illustration. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father cares for them, feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? There's a rhetorical question here. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? We can probably take away some hours from our life, right, by being anxious and worrying. But he continues, he says, and why do you worry about clothes? Again, illustrating from nature. See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And then Jesus says, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. And again, he repeats this. So do not worry. Do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And he says, for the pagans run after these things. In other words, this is is kind of apart from faith. This is not what it's supposed to look like. He says, the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And maybe you're familiar with these words, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. And he repeats this again. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How many of us recognize each day sometimes has enough trouble of its own, right? Like, that's true. Jesus is right. Again, don't worry can be translated, don't be anxious. Two years ago, there was a story that Time Magazine ran. Actually, it was kind of all over the place. 
there was a pretty massive study that had been taken by uh, the American Psychiatric Association. And the story began with these words at Time Magazine. It said, almost 40% of Americans are more anxious than they were this time last year. By the way, it wasn't 60% said they were less anxious. A lot said they were the same, and the small fraction said they were actually less anxious. I would say if that study came out today, probably the same is true. We are a people who seem to be growing in anxiety. Uh, they say about 4 million people, a fifth of our population in the U.S., has some sort of anxiety disorder. One in five. Safety health and finances, not surprisingly, are some of the greatest sources of anxiety. By the way, one of the quick rising sources of anxiety in our society is politics. Shocker, right? Shocker. Another article simply stated, or titled, Age of Anxiety, and it opens with these words, or this question. It says, America seems to be in the midst of a full-blown panic attack. Is there anything we can do about it? This is who we are as a culture right now. Statistics show that anxiety disorders are three times more common in wealthy countries than they are in the developing world. And we're going to touch on why that might be in a few minutes. But we seem to know we have a problem here. For example, 2017 to 18, Barnes & Noble said their sales of books and anxiety rose 25% in one year. And it keeps going up. By the way, if you're an author and you want to make some money, write a book about how not to be anxious. I think about this morning. We're only 26 days into 2020. What's already had our attention and our worry? There's probably quite a long list. I think of a few things. You might remember on January 3rd, we went into a state alert because of a missile strike in Iraq and fear of what was going to come that followed. Some of you remember what followed. I remember the news reports when they first came out that Iran was shooting missiles at U.S. bases. I was pretty concerned we were about to be in World War III. Maybe some of you were too. That was three weeks ago. How quick we forget sometimes. Uh, this morning the headlines are all about this coronavirus in China, right? It's broken out. We have an impeachment process going on in the Senate. There's questions about what the stock market's going to do. It's been going up for so long. Sooner or later, it's got to go down. And a few days ago, I don't know if you remember this, we were actually concerned it was going to snow here in Eugene. Doesn't look like it right now, does it? We worry about a lot of things. We're an anxious people. I wonder this morning, if you just take stock for a moment, what are you worried about? What has your concern? What has you on edge? What in life kind of feels like this picture? Right? The glass balancing on the edge of the table. Just looking at that might give some of you anxiety. I don't know. Proverbs 12.25 says that anxiety or worry weighs down the heart. I think we know that. We don't need to be told that, do we? It's true. It's another way of asking that question this morning is what has your heart weighed down right now? What's your mind and your soul and your heart devoting energy to that you're anxious about, that you're worried about? 
And more importantly this morning, how do we move away from worry and anxiety? Jesus quite bluntly says, do not worry. But if we go back to his words, what we see is there's also a reason given why we don't need to worry. It's not just a buck up and try harder kind of story here. If you go back and notice in verse 25, what does he say? It's good to hear these words again. He says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. And he gives some perspective. He says, is not life more than food and the body and more than clothes? Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Again, this question, are you not much more valuable than they are? And of course, this question that we know the answer to, can you, by worrying, add a single day to your life? Jesus says we don't have to worry about the things of everyday life. That's actually what he's getting at here. Things like what we'll wear, what we'll eat. And I want to be really clear, this isn't about like stopping a medication you might be on or something like that. Some of us chemically have greater challenges in this area than others. That's a reality. But wherever you are this morning, wherever your baseline of not anxious is, I believe what's true about every single one of us is we have the capacity to worry less. We have the capacity to be less anxious. So how do we follow Jesus' call to not worry? Well, first of all, we put things in perspective. Again, Jesus says, life is about much more than food and clothes. Do we not sometimes focus on things that really don't matter? Have we been anxious about things that either never come to pass or just aren't that valuable? Can we be honest and recognize that we sometimes worry and become anxious because we want something and we don't know if we can get it? And that's how sales work. The limited time of a sale is intended to create anxiety so you will act and buy something because you're afraid you'll miss out. That's how it works. Conversely, we might be worried about losing something that isn't as important as we might think it would be. For example, imagine you're in the airport and you realize you missed your, misplaced your cell phone right as they make that final boarding call. How many of you would be anxious? I would. I've actually misplaced my cell phone in the airport, and my wife can attest I got way too anxious about it. We do this because our, our perspective is broken. We have this amazing ability at one moment not to even know a thing exists, and then when we see it and want it, suddenly there's tension until we can get it. That new shiny bobble suddenly gets our focus, and it creates anxiety. It weighs down our hearts because we want it. One of the reasons I, I think that study showing that anxiety is three times higher in, in wealthier countries, why that's the case, is you and I perceive we have a lot to lose. We think we have a lot to lose. And, and at the same time, we live feeling like a lot of the things we want but don't quite have are just within reach or just beyond reach, and we might get there. And, and so that becomes our focus sometimes. The reality is when you have nothing to lose and your eyes aren't on the shiny new things, there's this whole chunk of anxiety and worry that just go away. I don't say that to romanticize or downplay poverty. But we have a lot of anxiety that finds its source simply in being afraid of losing something or not getting something we hope for. 
By the way, as Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat and the clothes you're going to wear, Jesus isn't talking to a bunch of people who are naked. They have clothes. They've probably all eaten. But he's getting at this reality that we can be consumed worrying about things that just aren't very important. This perception that we have a lot to lose is powerful. I think in Matthew 19, we, we read of a rich young ruler, right? He goes away sad after meeting with Jesus. He goes away sad. He wasn't sad when he came to Jesus. He wasn't sad when he was inquiring about some questions to Jesus. And Jesus even invites him to follow him. That's pretty incredible. That's a good day, right? When you're physically in front of Jesus and he says, yeah, come follow me. But he goes away sad. Why does he go away sad? Because he perceived that following Jesus would require losing something that meant a lot to him. And so in this call to not worry, to not be anxious, Jesus calls us to put our concerns in perspective. I'll give you an example. How many of you read about coronavirus this week? Some of you, if you've been anywhere near the news, you've probably heard about it breaking out in China. So far globally, 56 people have, have died and thousands are infected. A couple perspective pieces here. Not to downplay the reality of what some people are experiencing, but even if you were to get this virus, so far it looks like you'd have a 97% chance of being okay. Pretty good odds. I don't know if you remember things like swine flu, bird flu, SARS. Did they kill people? Yes, they did. And each of those cases, you know what killed more people in those years? Lightning. In fact, you're three to eight times more likely to get struck by lightning than you are to be harmed by one of these viruses, if you just go by the statistics. But we, we lose perspective so often because whatever is right in front of us seems like the biggest thing sometimes, doesn't it? Whether that's something we're afraid of or something we want. But Jesus doesn't stop when he talks about perspective. He goes on to say, you know, look at God's handiwork. Look at God's provision. Look at the examples all around you. Hopefully some of us were practicing that this week as part of our community group and those soul training exercises we're doing. You know, look around. Look at the examples of God's goodness, God's provision, and realize at the same time that God knows your needs. He isn't blind to them. And what's more, Jesus would argue, God cares for us. So there's reason to not be anxious. And again, by the way, no amount of worrying is going to add an hour to your life. So far, no one in the history of humankind has ever pulled that off, right? Again, continuing in the words of Jesus. Rick, if you'd bring up verse 28 for me on screen. He asks him, why do you worry about clothes? I just Asking why we worry about things is actually a really healthy practice. When you find yourself worrying about something, just to stop and say, why am I worrying about this? As I read this, it seems ridiculous to worry about clothes, right? But how many of us are worried about how we look when we're going to a job interview or something important? We worry about clothes sometimes. But he says, see how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And then this is the argument. If that is how God clothes 
The grass of the field which is here today and is thrown into the fire tomorrow, will He not much more clothe you? Or you will have little faith. And so Jesus says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans or the godless people run after these things. And your Heavenly Father knows you need them. The, the same idea here, that God's goodness is evident all around us, brings us to this reality that we don't need to worry about so many of the things that cause concern when we rest in the reality that God knows our needs and God is good and trustworthy. In fact, the whole basis of Jesus' argument to let go to not worry is God's goodness. His whole argument is you have examples all around you of God's goodness and, and the reality that God is trustworthy. And so the way to peace is to realize God sees our needs and cares for us. Now, trusting someone means placing things in their hands. And for some of us, that's very hard. For many of us, we've experienced untrustworthy people, haven't we? We've been burned. We've been at the wrong end of too many broken promises. But God calls us to lean into the trustworthiness of God. Faith requires this, in fact. You know, way, way back many years ago, when I was in college, I got a really cool summer job. I worked at a challenge course, one of those places that has the high ropes thing and all that, up in the, the woods on the side of Mount Hood. And, you know, we had a, a bunch of the obstacles that you probably think of that are scary. This is 40 feet up in the air. How many of you that would be hard? Just curious if you're a high thing, a few of you, okay? It's funny, a lot of people would say it's not going to be hard, and then they get up there and it's actually hard. We had a thing called the Leap of Faith. It was like this, except we actually had like this bar that you're supposed to jump for. And uh, few reached it. It's scary. Like you're literally jumping off a telephone pole 40 feet in the air. Now, what was interesting about my experience as a facilitator up there is that many of the people who actually did really well in this stuff up in the air that, you know, like, especially we, we had a lot of middle schoolers and, you know, the, the boys in particular wanted to be real macho and not afraid of anything. But many of these folks who did well up in the air really struggled in another place. And that's down on the ground. We had these team building initiatives. Uh, this is a great example of one. Um, these, if you can't see, there's two cables. They start back at that tree and they get farther and farther and farther apart as you go down them. And the idea is as a team of two people to get from one end to the other without touching the ground. This is, I think, sort of a picture of what faith actually looks like. You know, for some of us, being up in the air is scary, but, but for some, at least you can control. You can hold on to something, right? 
Whereas when you're put in a situation where you have to completely trust someone else, it gets hard. We Oftentimes when I actually facilitate this very event, I get two individuals that were convinced it was better if they just tried to balance on their own and get across these wires, and they didn't feel much success. We're kind of taught to think this way. In fact, we're taught to hedge our bets. There's a reason investors don't put all their money in one place, even if they think a stock or a company or a fund is going to take off. Why do we do that? Because we aren't quite sure. I read two articles from the same Wall Street Journal this week. One, of, By the way, Tesla stock right now is trading at about $565. And one of the articles was arguing why it's going to be worth $0. And the other article was arguing why it's going to be worth $2,000. How's that work, right? Because we don't know. We're not sure. Subtle ways we're, in some not so subtle ways, we're taught to hedge our bets and relationships, right? Only trust so far. In fact, one of the things that I still wrestle with, um, I was raised with this idea of stranger danger, right? You guys know about that if you've had kids? I think we're teaching our kids something terrible when we do that. I don't want my kids, like, running off with the guy that says, look at my puppy in the weird van or anything like that. But we're teaching our kids to intuitively be afraid of everyone they don't know, to believe that someone they don't know is automatically dangerous. I'm not sure that's how we want to raise our kids. There's got to be a better way, right? But if you've been hurt in a relationship, maybe trusting another person, is hard, or maybe trusting that very person who already hurt you is hard. By the way, this picture, I should point out, these two guys aren't going to make it. They will absolutely fail the way they're standing right now. I know this because if you look at the picture, they're doing two things. One, they're sort of pulling on each other. And two, they're sort of sticking their back ends out a little bit, right, to try to keep their balance. The only way you can get through this initiative is by standing straight up, putting your palms out, and completely leaning against the other person because at some point you get to where the wires are too far apart. But it looks kind of like they're each trying to still keep their own balance. I think this illustrates another one of those reasons why wealthier countries have much higher anxiety rates. We think we can still do it by ourselves. We can go it alone. In fact, individuality is kind of a big thing to us, right? And when we get down to it, many times we'd rather make it on our own than to have help. Anybody struggle with this? We spent years remodeling a house. You know what I was really terrible at doing? Asking for help, right? It's true. Anyone else wrestle with this? Anyone else have a spouse who wrestles with this that isn't admitting it right now? A few of you? We, we like to do it ourselves. We see value in that. And, and for some of us to even depend on someone or something else is a sign of weakness. And yet faith requires that. It's hard, this idea of leaning in and trusting but that other person's going to lean in too and not let go, and you're not going to fall flat on your face. In the same way, I think it's harder maybe than we recognize 
for us to lean in and trust that God's going to do the same thing, that He's going to hold us. What's interesting is, is, and it's kind of in opposition to what we might think, oftentimes the place we stop worrying, we stop having anxiety, is when we get to that place we know we can't do it and we have to surrender. In fact, peace is usually on the other side of that decision to surrender. And as long as we won't do it, we wrestle with anxiety. As long as we perceive we have a choice to turn back or we might do it on ourselves, we have anxiety. In fact, this event, what's really actually kind of humorous to watch as you facilitate it, is when people do this, inevitably they get to a point that their whole bodies start shaking. And one person's shaking, it causes the other person to shake, and it just like magnifies and eventually someone has to step off because they're both ending up kind of fighting, leaning on the other person, trying to do it themselves. Illustrate this a different way from a past experience. A number of years ago, I was asked to go speak at a youth camp up off of Vancouver Island, this beautiful place called Thetis Island, absolutely spectacular. I spent a week um, as the guest speaker with these high school students, and they came up to me at the end of the week, and they wanted to, to give me a thank you and said that they had paid for me to go do something as we all set out together. And we went to this adventure place, and I found out that they paid for me to, um, to do this. And then I wasn't sure if it was actually a thank you or if it was something else, right? Um, I can assure you that this woman, by the way, this is the very bridge that I jumped off of that river's 150 feet down. This woman looks so much more graceful than I did when I did this. So much more graceful. Here's what I learned through the experience of bungee jumping. First of all, I didn't die. Second of all, this is actually a shocking thing. It's much gentler than you expect. You expect this like jarring kind of bang, and it's much gentler than you expect. In fact, it's kind of peaceful as you fall through there. You're kind of twisting and bouncing and all that. But what I found is that the falling isn't hard. Standing on the bridge wasn't that hard. Of course, when you start to get out on this little platform, it gets harder. Um, looking down, and you can see it in this picture, and realizing that I didn't have a harness on, but just this strap around my ankles, surprisingly wasn't that hard because it seemed like it made sense. None of that was that hard, but this moment is hard. Now, in the picture, you see the woman's bending her legs. She almost certainly doesn't intend to. She's probably picturing doing the swan fall like somebody else. But what happens so often is you get yourself to lean forward, you get yourself to lean forward, and that moment where you realize you're not in control anymore, you just kind of crumple because you try to save it. Now, for me, that may or may not have taken a significant amount of time and multiple attempts to get myself into that position. But there's this split second where you move from a sense of control to the realization that you no longer have any. That's what this picture represents. That's a really hard place to be, isn't it? It's really hard when you're right on the edge of that place where you still think you have some control. But at some point, you don't. And that's the proverbial point of no return, right? 
and I actually remember this. I, I don't have a very good memory about a lot of things, but I remember this moment quite clearly. And I remember that moment of sheer terror when I was about here, and then it was gone. There wasn't much I could do about it. Either that bungee was going to catch me or it wasn't, right? At some point, there's that point of no return. And when we pass it, what's surprising is so often on the other side is peace, is calm. It comes because of surrender. And one of the striking aspects of the gospel stories that we see again and again and again is this sort of all-in point of no return invitation that Jesus calls people to. You know, we have disciples who leave their nets and their father on a shore and just walk off. Some of us are inoculated to that story. That's kind of crazy. They just leave and follow Jesus. We have a guy who's sitting at a very lucrative job, if not unscrupulous, and at Jesus' invitation, he just gets up and he leaves his job. He goes and he follows Jesus. We find another man who has spent his life apparently taking advantage of people. And he encounters Jesus and gives half of his money away. And then with the other half says, if I've, if I've taken advantage of anyone, I'll pay them back four times. Like That's kind of crazy. That's quite a response, right? That's not hedging a bet. That's not halfway. And it seems that throughout the Gospels, there's this requirement of this sort of point of no return, this moment of faith of releasing control and trusting in God's goodness and trustworthiness. Acting on that belief that God has something better than what I might be chasing. I think we find the similar moment back in Matthew 6. Rick, if you bring that up on the screen. Jesus says, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I would suggest that actually doing that is a whole lot like leaning off that bridge and letting yourself fall. There's a cost involved to seeking first God's kingdom rather than our own. He says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, I don't think we can actually accomplish verse 34 without first yielding control as we're called to in verse 33. I don't think you get to skip over verse 33 to get to the 34. I think one leads to the other. To seek God's kingdom is to lean in to God's trustworthiness, to put our energy into the things of Jesus, like serving others. That's costly. Like loving other people unconditionally, even when we know they're not going to love us back. That's costly. That's hard. Like being generous. Like allowing ourselves to be known in a community of other believers. Giving ourselves away. You, know, you can't do these things without releasing your grip on the things you want and worry about. They're in opposition to each other. If we don't trust that all these things will be given to us as well, we continue to worry. 
I think we sit at that point teetering just shy of that point of surrender where we can still back up if we need to. We've hedged our bet. Now back on the ropes course, there's another exercise that maybe some of you have experienced. Let's see if it'll come up. There it is. Anybody done this? Called the trust fall? Has anybody been dropped doing this? No one. That's fascinating. So you have a bunch of people hold their hands out. They're not even, usually they're not even holding hands. They're just holding their hands out. It doesn't look like it should work. You have a group of people on the ground all facing each other with their arms out like this. And then you convince somebody to get up on a platform like this and to fall backwards. It's actually kind of terrifying. The only way this really works well is if the person falling doesn't bend. If you bend, what happens? All your weight comes on one or two people, right? It only works if you stay stiff and trust. But guess what our tendency is? You think more people stay stiff and straight or fold? It's the second one, right? By a wide margin. Why do we do that? Why don't we just stay stiff? It's because we're afraid we won't be caught. We hedge our bets. In the same way that I had to sort of do some self-talk on that bridge with the bungee cord, sort of looking down, yeah, I think the webbing will hold me. I've seen a bunch of other people do this, and none of them have died yet. In fact, I looked into the track record. It seems like nobody's ever died at this thing, so I'm probably okay. You know, sometimes I have to do that self-talk to get to that point that I'll surrender. We do that in a number of places in our lives. Faith in God is the same way. It's the same way. In fact, if we're honest, I think one of the biggest challenges to faith in Jesus Christ isn't questioning historically, did he die on a cross? Was he risen from the grave? One of the biggest challenges is, I still want to do it myself. I don't want to say yes to trusting that God's really going to save me apart from anything I've done. I think that's the scary part of the gospel. Because we want to continue to earn God's love to, to make it ourselves. And the call of the good news of Jesus is that we say yes to being saved. That we allow ourselves, if you will, to fall into his arms. We don't try to do it ourselves anymore. We surrender. We only do that when we recognize God's goodness, God's love, and God's trustworthiness. And by the way, this is a decision we make more than once. We make this decision when we come to faith in Christ, but we also make this sort of decision every single day, right? Am I going to worry about things? Am I going to be upset with my brother or sister or my neighbor or my spouse? Am I going to hold them captive to what they've done in the past? Am I going to hold my finances myself and be super tight and only think of myself? Am I going to chase after that new thing I saw on TV? Like we have those questions every day. And so long as we're in that place that we think we can do something about it, it usually leads to anxiety. That's where Jesus is so genius in this. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added as well. That's what leads to not worrying. Is a trained, repeated decision 
to go to that point of no return and trust. Trust that giving ourselves away actually leads to life. Trust that no matter what you and I have done in Christ, it has actually been paid for at the cross. It's a decision we make again and again. And yet I find when we hold back or or try to go halfway, it leads to anxiety and worry. And so this week, our challenge is to talk through the pieces we see in front of ourselves. So, you know, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air, look at the fields. To kind of do that self-talk to enable us to fall more completely into the arms of our God. So here's what I'd like to challenge you to do. And if you're in one of our community groups, you're going to be doing this anyways. And get a head start this morning. Take time to literally write out every blessing you can think of. Every good thing. Every good thing that you see God has provided. Start a list. And then each day this week, keep adding to it. See if you can get to 50 things, 100, 200. This is a practice that helps build that faith reflex that allows us to lean in. We remember, that's right, God is good. I can trust God. I can seek first his kingdom and he will take care of these things. It may be that your list has donuts. It might be your family. It might be your home, your health. Keep writing those things out. Keep thinking about the things you're grateful for that God has done. And then here's what I want to encourage you to do. Do that through this week. And then don't get rid of that list. Hang on to it. In fact, maybe that's a list that goes on your desktop on your computer or on your fridge at home and you start a practice of adding to it. It's fascinating how such a simple practice can increase our confidence in God's goodness, that God's trustworthy when we just recognize and remember again and again the ways in which God has caught us, the ways in which God has provided for us. James says this, Rick, if you can bring it on the screen. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Now, what's the deception? Verse 17, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. We get deceived. We think those good things come from our own work. We think they come from other places. We forget the source of every good thing. We forget the trustworthiness of God. I would ask you this morning, what does it look like to allow yourselves to fall into God's arms? What does it look like to surrender this morning? It might be faith. It might be believing in Jesus. It might be choosing not to hold on to a grudge and forgiving someone. What does that look like for you this morning? What is challenging that you want to hold on to that God might invite you to just surrender? This week, I hope we'll lean into that list, reminding ourselves and recognizing God's trustworthiness, that we wouldn't be deceived. We wouldn't be led to worry and anxiety. 
Peter writes this. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. By the way, it doesn't lift you up this instant. That's the hard part. It's in due time. I don't know what due time is. But he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's until we recognize God's care for us that we're able to really do that effectively, isn't it? The reason we can cast our cares on God is because we know he cares for us. So as I close in prayer this morning, I want to invite you to cast your worries and concerns to the Lord. As we pray, just to say, you know, God, I surrender. I need your help. Would you help me to see your goodness and to trust you? And would you take the anxiety from me? Let's pray. Father, I would pray for all of us here this morning that you would release us from anxiety and worry as we learn to surrender to you. God, we admit we have many things we worry about, we get worked up over, we're concerned by, we're anxious about. And those that we're aware of this morning, we just offer them to you and ask for your help. Ask that you would help us to surrender and to trust in your goodness. God, would you help us more fully this week to seek first your kingdom, to seek first the way of Jesus, and to take a fresh step in trusting that you'll take care of the rest. It's in Jesus' name we pray.